Well, good evening to you. It's good to be back, and I shouldn't be missing any more Wednesday nights for a while, Lord willing, so uh, that's good. Um, but I'm excited to get into our study tonight. We're continuing our series of tough questions, and we're going to talk about what about people who don't know Jesus? What about people who never believe? And that's a question that has troubled a lot of people, a lot of Christians for a long, long time. Uh, it troubled me. I can remember as a little boy, uh, and when I was, I, I accepted Christ when I was nine, uh, but I remember in the lead up to that thinking, well, what about little boys in other parts of the world that don't know anything about Jesus. Because I knew those people existed because we prayed for missionaries that went to them. And I thought, well, what about the ones who haven't heard? What about them? Um, and it kind of, uh, it all came to a head for me when I was in college. And I worked two summers in college for the orientation group. So we, kids would come in and we'd guide them around campus and help them get registered for classes. And it was a really good job. And in between sessions, we'd just all hang out together. And we were talking one day, and one of my one of the, my coworkers who was raised a Christian, she was talking about how uh, she was starting to have doubts about Christianity. And she said she was talking to a friend of hers who was a devout Christian, a churchgoer, uh, and, uh, and maybe it was a roommate, and said, "So, what do you think about somebody like Gandhi, for instance? Where do you think Gandhi is now that he's dead?" And she said, and her, her roommate said, "Well, he's a Hindu. He never accepted Jesus, so he's in hell now." And my friend, my coworker said, well, if, this is what she said to us. If you're telling me that Christianity teaches that one of the bravest and, and kindest and best people who ever lived isn't in heaven cause, just because he was in the wrong religion, then that's not a religion I want to be part of anymore. And I can remember thinking, wow, I don't even know how to respond to that. And I was really glad when someone changed the question, changed the conversation, the subject, because I, I was just baffled. And, and we live in a world, if, if you think about it, this will really bother you. Missiologists, those are people who, who study missions, they estimate as much as one-third of humanity doesn't even know who Jesus was. Maybe not hasn't even heard his name. Um, at least four billion people don't identify as Christians. The percentage of Americans who identify as Christian has decreased by 11% just in this generation. And as we all have heard over and over again, the fastest growing religious group in America today are the, the so-called nuns, the people who say, I don't have any religious affiliation at all. But for most of us, this question is a lot more personal because all of us as Christians, we have people we're personally concerned about. We've got children, we've got siblings, we've got uh, school friends or coworkers, we've got uh, maybe a, an in-law or an aunt or uncle or even a parent uh, maybe even a, a spouse who isn't a believer. And when we think about this question, we think about them. And we want to know what's going to happen to them. If, if they never accept Christ as their Savior, what's going to happen to them? What about people we know who, and we've all got these people in our lives, who maybe at an earlier stage of life went through some kind of religious ritual. Maybe they got baptized, or maybe they got confirmed, or maybe they went through some uh, sort of public profession of faith. But now they don't go to church, they don't show any evidence of, of real uh, sustaining faith. What about them? What happens if Jesus returns today? What if they stand before him today? What does the Bible say about this? What how can we answer these questions? It really comes down to the question, would a loving God send people to hell? And that's what really we really struggle with, that concept. Uh, 
So uh, one common quote-unquote solution to this, this is one of the ways people try to work this out, is they'll say, well, I don't so much think that hell is a real place. That was just kind of an ancient idea. It's become obsolete in a modern time. We just don't think that such a place could exist. Uh, but the problem with that is Jesus certainly seemed to think it was real. He talked about it often enough. He spoke about it specifically 15 separate times in the Gospels. And he usually used the same image when he talked about hell. He used an Aramaic word, Gehenna. Gehenna was a reference to a valley right outside Jerusalem, the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. Uh, and that was the place where, uh, in Jesus' day, they burned garbage and threw the bodies of convicted criminals to, to burn in the fire that did not go out. Uh, earlier, in earlier generations, it was the site of pagan worship. It was where the fires of sacrifice, the pagan sacrifice, were lit. So it was considered a cursed area. And that was Jesus' image of what hell is like, just a place you don't want to be. Um, now, the question that a lot of people have is, well, is he being literal? Because there are parts of the Bible that talk about hell in terms of flames, but there are also passages that talk about hell in terms of darkness. So how can there be flames and darkness? We don't know. I'm of the belief that all of that's symbolic, but we don't know. I don't personally know anybody who's been there and come back to tell us. So uh, the, the fact is that Jesus spoke about hell in literal terms, and so if we're going to believe what he said about other things, I think we should believe what he said about that subject. One more thing on this, though. I find it interesting. We are bothered by the idea that there's a literal hell, but the Jews like, who lived in Jesus' time and in Old Testament times, the idea didn't seem to bother them at all. You know, and I think maybe it's because we live in such a prosperous time. Maybe it's sort of a peculiarity of being affluent people who've never really had to suffer that we don't really, we have a hard time understanding a God of judgment and wrath uh, because we don't, we don't need that. We, we just don't feel the need for someone to take up for us. Like, for instance, <clears throat> the Jews did all throughout history and how oppressed they've been, knowing that God has their side and someday people who have been cruel to them will have to answer for it. That, that was helpful to them. I, I'm reminded of a conversation between two people and, and one woman said to her friend, if I believed in a God, he wouldn't be a God of wrath and justice. He would be a God of who would be charming and amusing and thoughtful. And the other guy who was Jewish said, well, I doubt that'd be much comfort to you when they herded you onto the cattle cars and took you to the concentration camps. You'd probably prefer a God of judgment at that point. Um, you know, people today who have suffered, people, Christians and others who've had their churches bombed, they understand the need for the wrath of God. Uh, people who've been abused, sexually abused by a, a priest or a minister, they understand God needs to uh, bring people to account. I don't think they have any trouble with the idea of hell. Now, another solution people have is, well, there is a hell, but it's, it's only for the really bad people. It's only for the really evil people. And as long as you are tolerant of others and you do your best to be kind, then most people will get there. You know, hell is for the dictators. Hell is for the child molesters. Hell is for the rapists. Um, hell is for the serial killers. But everybody else is pretty much fine. But again, if that's true, Jesus certainly didn't seem to know it. We think about his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And that's one of those landmark chapters of the Bible. And here's Nicodemus. Let's remember who this is. 
This is a man who's a member of the ruling council of Judaism. He's extremely religious, and he's also a man of compassion and integrity. We know this because he has walked away from his uh, fellow Pharisees and Sadducees, and he's actually exploring Jesus for himself. So he wants to check this man out for himself, which shows that he had a real spiritual insight. He's a man who we know from the Gospel of John, he tried to defend Jesus when the council wanted to kill him. Later on, when Jesus was crucified, he and Joseph of Arimathea were the two who went forward at risk of their own reputation, and they buried Jesus in a tomb. They anointed his body and took care of him. Uh, so here's a good man, a religious man, and yet Jesus looks him in the face and says, you must be born again. The person you are cannot get into the kingdom of heaven. You have to become someone new. And that had to shock Nicodemus because even though he's a good man, I'm sure he thought, well, cer certainly I'm good enough. I'm better than most of humanity. And yet Jesus said, no, you're actually not. Something has to happen in your life supernatural to make you qualified for that place. Remember, Jesus very famously said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way literally means I'm the road. I'm the only path. There is no other path to God. And in Acts 4.12, the early church taught there's salvation in no one else because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Jesus and the early Christians, those who knew him, all believed that heaven is not someplace that everybody just goes simply for being relatively good, that there's a different standard there. So what did Jesus actually have to say about the fate of unbelievers? Well, I find this passage interesting. You're going to hear me quote it, or you're going to read it along with me, and you're going to say, well, Jeff, what does that have to do with this question? I'll get to that. But this is Luke 13, 1 through 5. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So what's going on here is Jesus, by this time, he's known as a sage. He's known as a, pro as a prophet and a rabbi. And, and so he's teaching and people are learning new things about God. And it's only natural that people want to ask him how he feels about current events. Now, I find it interesting that... Uh, People today, news channels, news networks will, will find famous preachers. I mean, this, this isn't new. They did this with Billy Graham as well. And they'll want to ask him about them about current events. What do you think about what's going on in Syria? What do you think about uh, what's going on with our economy? Uh, well, they try this with Jesus. And Jesus says, well, it's none of your business. Uh, yeah, they say, well, did you hear about those Galileans that went to Jerusalem and they were going to offer sacrifices at the temple? But Pilate, that, that nasty Roman governor, he, he slaughtered them right there and their blood was mingled with their sacrifices. Do you think they deserved what happened to them? And Jesus said, that's not your concern. Don't worry about whether they deserve that or not. Don't worry about whether they were worthy of God's mercy or not. That's not your problem. You just better look to your own self. And don't worry about those, those 18 people who died when that tower fell on them over in Siloam. I heard about that too. That's none of your business either. Jesus was not about to give an opinion or a judgment about someone else to the people who were asking him. 
He said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I'm not here to comment on current events, Jesus said. I'm here to lead you to salvation. So what do we get from Scripture? What do we, what do we know about this question? What about people who don't know Jesus? Well, here's what I've come up with. Number one, it's not our job to decide anyone's eternal fate. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad we're not the ones that sit in judgment? Although there may be one or two people that you'd like to sit in judgment of. But aren't you glad that that's not our job? And yet, can we all be honest? I, let me just confess to myself, for myself. Down through my life as a teenager, a young adult, I can think of many times where we've played this little parlor game of, well, do you think so-and-so's saved? And sometimes it would be a, a particular celebrity, uh, somebody who claimed religious faith, but you know they'd gotten into this kind of trouble. Or maybe it was a politician, or maybe it was a friend of ours that we knew, or maybe it was somebody of another denomination. Well, do you think people who go to that kind of church can actually go to heaven? Because after all, they believe that stuff over there that we don't believe. And we used to, I mean, we used to have those conversations all the time, and I'm sure you do too. But I've decided in my middle years that those conversations are a waste of time. First of all, we don't see Jesus and the apostles and the prophets sitting around and talking about that. Second of all, we don't have a list in the Bible of criteria we can use to make that judgment. What the Bible does give us is ways to know if we are saved. We, we know how to get saved. We know how to have assurance of our salvation, but we don't know how to discern someone else's heart. We don't know how to discern whether, okay, this person believes differently than me on this, but maybe they're heart is right with God. Well, this person has committed this sin that I know is wrong, but have they truly repented? We can't make that judgment. That's not our job. Just to give you an illustration of how fruitless that is, let's just play that game for a minute. So what would you say about a president of this country who was very courageous, very wise, who basically saved our nation in a time of crisis, who was very knowledgeable of that, about the scriptures, quoted them all the time, and acted in ways that were Christ-like, but never made any public profession of faith, never joined a church. Is that person saved? What would you say about a clergyman who... Uh, changed the world for good in many ways, and yet, on the other hand, he believed a lot of things that would disqualify him from teaching a Baptist Sunday school class. Uh, what would you say about a religious leader who was also a man of great faith, who wrote many songs about the Lord, um, but also committed adultery and murder? Well, we're talking about Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther and King David. Now, I don't know if they're in heaven or not, but I wouldn't bet against them. So you see how hard it is to know. We can't say what's in a person's heart just based on what we see from external evidence. And I know some of my fiery brethren, and maybe perhaps some of you are saying, yeah, but Jeff, I think we need to preach judgment to the lost. We need to tell people what's going to happen to them. Um, we need to tell them they're, they're headed for damnation, and that's how they're going to get saved. And far be it from me to tell somebody that their ministry is not of God. That's not my job either. I just don't see Jesus actually preaching that way. Jesus was fiery. Jesus got on people's case. But who did he preach his fiery sermons to? The religious people. The religious. There were irreligious people all around Jesus. There were Roman soldiers who were, who were the pawns of a, of a fascist, corrupt, 
evil government. And Jesus had all kinds of opportunity to condemn them, but he didn't. Think about Paul. And Paul comes from a Pharisaic background. I'm sure growing up and up, to, up until his middle years when he met Jesus, I'm sure he had lots of ugly words for the Greeks and the Romans. And yet when we see him in Athens on Mars Hill, and he's got all those philosophers ready to listen to him, does he blast them? Does he say, you're a bunch of idolatrous, immoral, evil men, and you need to repent? Are you going to burn? No, he starts to say, well, here's what you and I have in common. We're both very religious. Now, let me tell you about the God you don't know. He appealed to them from a place of common ground. I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying that if God has called you to get in someone's face and confront them and say, you need to turn things around or it's not going to go well for you. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that when you look at Scripture, the approach that Paul and Jesus seem to take and the other preachers in the the Word of God is, I'm going to do what seems most likely to produce repentance. I'm not going to do what seems most likely to win an argument. And there's a difference between those two. It's not our job to decide anyone's eternal fate. Second thing we know from Scripture, we can trust God with the souls of others, just like we can trust Him with our own selves. One of the things that I've noticed as I've read the Bible over and over again, and and I I keep doing it until I die, or as long as I've got brain cells to rub together, um, there's really not a lot of information in the Bible about what characters are in heaven now. Interestingly, the only person in the whole Bible who gets a direct promise of heaven is a thief that died on the cross next to Jesus. If you want proof that somebody else is in the Bible, that somebody else in the Bible is in heaven, it's hard to find. Think about the Old Testament saints. I mean, these are heroes of the faith. There's There's Hebrews 11 and 12 that talks about the great people of faith. And then in chapter 12, it says, uh, you know, they're they're the great cloud of witnesses looking down on us from above. So that indicates that those people are in heaven. But that's not all the Old Testament saints. Not all of them are mentioned in there. So what do we know? And if they are there, how did God get them there since they lived before Jesus and his uh, redemptive death? I've heard answers that sort of make sense, but there's no definitive statement in the Bible where God says, here's how the Old Testament people are redeemed. Think about this, too. We, all, we as Baptists talk about the age of accountability, how if a little child, if a baby dies, then God will accept them into his heaven because they haven't reached the age of accountability. But that teaching is never explicitly stated in the Bible. Here's what we do know. We know that God loves children. Jesus said, let the little children come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. That's not proof that babies go to heaven, of course, but it means that God loves little children. You don't have to be intellectually sound. You don't have to be physically or emotionally mature to, to be loved by God. We know that God is fair. God's not going to do anything unjust. God is not, we're not going to have any grounds for argument on judgment day. Lord, you were unjust. We also know that God's compassion is for his children. And that's all of us. That he does not want anyone to spend eternity apart from him. Ezekiel 18.32 says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. 1 Peter 3.9 says, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So I truly believe that, that God is going to get everyone into heaven who he can, 
everyone who is willing to go. Now, C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce says that the door of hell is locked from the inside and everyone who's in hell is there because they want to be. I don't think you can prove that scripturally. It makes, it sounds good, but I think the scriptural truth isn't far from that. I think, I think God, God is not going to leave anybody out who wants to receive his grace. I don't know how that works. I just know that God is too fair to lock somebody out who would be willing to receive him. A God, put it this way, a God who loves us enough to die for us, and that's who we're talking about. A God who loves us enough to die for us is not going to quibble on the judgment day and say, well, you said that prayer wrong. Or, well, you did the right prayer, but you said it in the wrong church. Or, well, you know, uh, I just don't like this aspect of your faith. I don't think God is that kind of God. After all, it costs the blood of his son, so he's going to do whatever it takes. I don't think everybody goes to heaven. But I do think God's mercy and grace are wider than we think. Number three, our job is to bring as many people to Christ as possible. So based on what I've said so far, if I quit now, you might think that what we were saying was, don't worry about anybody else, just make sure you're good to go and everything's fine. But that's not the message of Scripture at all. It doesn't mean don't worry about others, just make sure you're getting in. For one, think about the Great Commission. So Matthew 28, uh, go into all the world, Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'll be with you always till the end of the age. We've memorized that in RAs and GAs and Sunday school and VBS. But did you know there's a version of that saying in all four Gospels and one at the beginning of Acts? And if you go look them up, they're all different. And I think that's because Jesus said it at least five different times in five different ways. That's how important it was to him. He, he wanted his disciples to know before he ascended into heaven, I'm leaving you here for a reason. If it was just because I wanted you to be saved, I'd take you to heaven with me now. I'm leaving you here because there are others who need to know. There are others who need to hear. Our job is to bring as many people to Christ as possible. And I know this is hard for us to wrap our minds around, but the, the issue isn't just are they going to go to heaven when they die? The issue is, do they know Jesus now? Because God is not just saving individual souls. This is what we're talking about on Sunday mornings. He's building a new people, a new creation out of you and me and everyone else who comes into his family. He's, he's bringing us into this new life. And, and, and following Jesus, I mean, eternal life starts the day you accept Christ. You become seated with him in the heavenlies. So I like Jim Dennison's answer. Someone was asking him, so what about people who don't know Jesus, never hear the gospel? What happens to them? And his answer, I've got it on your notes in case you want to remember it. The Bible doesn't equip us to solve that problem with our theology, but we are called to solve it with our witness. See what I, you hear what that's saying? I can't give you a definitive answer to that, that theoretical uh, person in Calcutta who never hears the name of Jesus or the Bushman in Namibia or, or wherever you want to name that never hears the name of Jesus. I don't know what God's going to do with that person. All I know is it's my job to make sure they do hear the name of Jesus. It's my job to make sure my neighbor hears. It's my job to make sure my coworker hears. It's my job to make sure everyone who knows me if I die before they do, they're able to say, well, 
he did his best to make sure I knew that Jesus loved me. So let's go back to the beginning. Think about those loved ones we talked about earlier. Think about friends you have and loved ones and, and, and family members who don't know the Lord and who are headed in the wrong direction. Think about, for instance, people who made decisions earlier in life, had some religious commitment earlier in life, and now they don't show any commitment at all. Let me ask you something. If, if some stranger, somebody you don't even know, who was a believer in Christ, came along and befriended them, that person, that person that's important to you, if some stranger came along and invested in them and, and loved them and lived out the Christian faith before them in a way with tremendous integrity and grace, and, and your loved one, your friend, became a believer, came back to Christ, became committed to following the right path because of that person's influence, how would you feel about that person? Would you be excited about it? Would you want to meet them? Would you want to shake their hand, give them a hug? Absolutely. So remember... Everybody you know, everybody you meet, everyone you run into, that's someone's son or daughter. And more importantly, that's someone's, that, that, is, that is a child of God that he created in that person's mother's womb, crafted carefully with a, a, an exquisite plan for their lives, and his heart goes out to them. So if you choose to reach out to that person, if you choose to love that person, your coworker, your boss, your neighbor, the person who cuts your hair or brings you coffee at the restaurant, the, the person who teaches your child, if you choose to show them love in some intentional way, looking for an opportunity one day to say, how can I pray for you? Or here's what's going on in my church. Would you like to come? If you make that effort, how do you think God's going to feel? This isn't about making God love you more because he can't, but we ought to want to reward his love by saying, because you've done, you've done this for me, Lord Jesus, I want to bless you by loving someone else. That's our job. That's our task. That's why we're here. We cannot solve these problems. We can't answer all these questions but we can do our best to make these questions irrelevant. I don't know. Jim Dennison, I don't know if his math is right because math is not my thing, but he claims that if every Christian alive today won one person to the Lord this year, and the next year all those people won one person to the Lord, it would take 34 years for the whole world to be saved. I don't know if that's true, but it should be worth trying. I'd love to see it. So that's our task. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you tonight. Um, we come before you as your children, not because we're smarter, not because we're better, uh, but because, Lord, your grace is amazing and you've accepted us into your family. And we are grateful for that. We're so very grateful. Father, it bothers us to know there are people who don't know you and are missing out on what we're experiencing. And certainly it, it really breaks our heart to know that there are people who will spend eternity separated from you. Lord, we pray that you would let that concern light a fire in us that leads to us supporting mission work around the world, that leads to us praying diligently for the lost people that we know that you've brought into our orbit. Lord, that leads to us 
seeking opportunities to show love to people in our orbit. Lord, I pray for specific people we're concerned about and people who maybe won't listen to us, our own kids or our relatives. I pray that you would send someone to them they will listen to. Lord, I pray that you would send someone to them who would influence them toward salvation. And I pray, Lord, I'm grateful we can trust in you. You are going to do what's right. We know we can believe that uh, your, your grace is amazing and you will save people that we think it's impossible to save. Lord, we thank you for who you are. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.